Well, for a while now, Hollywood has increasingly been obsessed with gritty origin story reboots. So I'm sure that it starts somewhere with a, a desire for a quick cash grab. You know, let's, let's take an old beloved storyline and let's just, let's just do it again. But when we do it this way, let's not, just, uh, let's not just redo the old plot points just with new faces. Maybe let's take it back, maybe earlier than anyone has done it before. Let's give all the, the gritty backstory necessary to really cherish this hero. And so, of course, we see that a lot with hero movies. Lots of superhero movies do this all the time, whether it's Batman Begins or the fact that, like, every decade we need a new, new Spider-Man in particular. But just about everybody's gotten this treatment, right? So 007, he got it with Casino Royale. Han Solo got that aptly titled film, Solo, A Star Wars Story. And it's not just the guys, right? Anna Green Gables, she got Anne with an E. Cruella got her own special. It seems that Buzz Lightyear's getting one this next year. I mean, there's lots to look forward to in the genre of gritty origin story reboots. And I think there's some appeal to it. And we might assume that because we enjoy the appeal of that in the movies that we watch or the stories that we read, that we might find that same appeal in the passage that we'll be studying today. But I think there's far more going on here. There's more than just a desire to, to kind of get the, the hard-knock, gritty origin stories of Jesus, to, to move past all the glitz and glamour, glamour of the, the Christmas carol and, and move on to the, the, the violence and the, the hardship. I, I think more than that, I think what Matthew has for us today is a desire for us to see that from the very beginning, Jesus has been our hope. And Jesus, from the very beginning, has been the fulfillment of all the stories, themes, characters, and prophecies of the Old Testament. Like Paul would say, all the promises of God find their yes in him. I think that's what Matthew has for us today. And so if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. If you want, you can go ahead and turn there just even to chapter 1, and we'll kind of look to see where we've been. I'll remind us where we've been so far. And if you're using the Bible uh, provided for you in the pew, I'll start on page 807. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love to offer that to you for you to keep, um, to read God's Word. We also have some others that are available in Spanish at Connecting Point, which is the desks just right out this way in the foyer. Well, the Gospel of Matthew serves as the bridge between the Old Testament and the New. And so Matthew's goal throughout this gospel is to convince you that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-expected Savior of the world. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've done this short series as we've looked at the prologue, the first two chapters of Matthew. And if you're looking at your Bibles, you can see that in chapter 1, Matthew introduces us to Jesus in the same way the major characters are introduced in the book of Genesis with their genealogy. So even here, Matthew is using an Old Testament literary pattern to show us that Jesus is the Old Testament fulfillment of, of prophetic patterns. So keeping going, we, we looked then just two weeks ago, starting in verse 18 at the birth of Jesus, where Matthew tells us that Joseph learns that, Jesus, that Mary is with child by the Holy Spirit. And then he's directed in a dream to go ahead and still marry her. 
and to name that child Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then last week, we moved into chapter 2. And John Henderson preached on the first 12 verses of chapter 2, where we're introduced to a band of magi, wise men that have traveled from the east in search of the one who was born the king of the Jews. And their entrance into the story and even into that city of Jerusalem causes quite a stir. King Herod and all of his cronies, and it seems all of Jerusalem, were troubled. So Herod tells the Magi in verse 6 that the babe they seek was prophesied centuries before to be born in a little town just south of the capital called Bethlehem. And then the king also makes this dubious request. It's going to be important for our story today. He asks the Magi that once they've located the child, that they should come back and they should bring word so that he too, the king, could go and to worship him. But after finding and worshiping Jesus, the Magi were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And that part, um, so that, that ends their story. They exit the scene, headed another way to their own country, having found the one who was born the king of the Jews. And that gets us to our passage today. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. So if you would, follow along with me as I read for us. Now when they had departed, they being the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I told you that this is not the part of the Christmas story that we sing about in carols. And as we get into this part, maybe it's unfamiliar to you. Maybe you didn't know this part of Jesus' origin. I mean, lots of different parts to it, lots of questions that arise. Who are these people? Why did this happen? Why did it happen in this way? What, what's going on here? Why does Matthew quote this verse and not that verse? How, what is he doing here? And so before we get 
lost in all of those details, I want us to be careful that we can see the whole forest, all right? Because it's really easy in a passage like this for us to lose the forest for the trees, which would be easily done. And so before we do that, let's, let's zoom out. Let's hop in a plane and let's rise to 40,000 feet and let's make sure we have a good grasp of what Matthew intends for us to be able to understand about the whole forest. And then before we walk away, we'll land the plane and before we're finished taxiing, I'll point out some trees along the way so we can understand not only the forest, but also the trees. Now at the 40,000 level, what I want us to see is that our hope is revealed by this passage. Our hope is revealed. And then when we land, we point out some details, we'll also see that our hearts are revealed in this passage. So let's first look for our hope revealed, and then we'll see how our hearts are revealed by that hope. Now, at 40,000 feet, you can really see the curvature of the earth. And from this level, from our, looking at our story, we can really see the curvature of the story arc going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Going all the way back from, from Eden and moving forward through the patriarchs and into the exodus and the judges and the kings and the, and the exile and the return. From here, we can see all those points along the journey. And I believe that Matthew intends for us to make those connections as we read this passage. He wants us to see in this passage here that as our hope is revealed, it's revealed in Christ who is better in the exodus, he is better in the exile, and he is better everywhere in between. Exodus, exile, and everywhere in between. That's what I think Matthew's doing here when he picks up on this pattern. So if you'll notice verses 13 through 15, verses 16 through 18, and 19 through the, through the end of the chapter kind of work as these little episodes. And they each have a pattern. So it begins with information that's revealed, and then there's a response to that information. And then Matthew helps us understand how what happens there is a fulfillment of what God always intended and what he told his people in his word. And so we see this first one, this first fulfillment is in, is in verse 15 when it says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So what Matthew is doing here is he's just described that that Joseph has received this news and he needs to flee to Egypt. He's headed off into Egypt. He's taking the child and his mother. And what Matthew says is, hey, this, this was always the plan. This fits the pattern. This fits the pattern that God says, out of Egypt, I called my son. He's quoting here from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And he's helping us to understand that Jesus is the better Israel, as pictured in the Exodus. Matthew's telling us here at the beginning, it's like that he's telling us in the, in, excuse me, he's telling us here at the beginning how the end of the story will play out. So Matthew's not interested in the drama of how this will all unfold. It's like if you watch the first episode, and at the end of the episode, they tell you, hey, all the bad guys are going to die, and it's going to work out just fine. Like, I know you were worried about the baby. I know you're worried about where he was going to go and what was going to happen, but don't worry. It's all going to work out. It's kind of like in The Princess Bride where the grandfather is reading 
uh, to his grandson and he's worried that the drama will overwhelm him. And so he just pauses and tells him she doesn't die at this point. He's like, I, I wasn't worried about that. Well, that's what Matthew does because Matthew's point is not for us to get caught up in the drama. Matthew wants us to know that this is a picture of what God has always promised will happen. Do you see the picture? Do you see the exodus right here? Because he doesn't tell us that, Matt, that Jesus was called to go into Egypt, right? There are plenty of passages throughout the Old Testament that relate that information, that God's people were sent into Egypt. Now, Matthew already jumps to the end, and he tells us that out of Egypt, I've called my son. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. So what, what Matthew is connecting here is that Jesus is the fullness of the people of Israel. He is the fullness of the Exodus. The book of Genesis records that, that God created the world and then he created a people for himself. And, and, then, and then Adam and Eve, whom he created, they lived in perfect harmony with him, but they rebelled and they turned away from God. And as their punishment, they were pushed out. And, and and God continues to, to build those people together. He chooses Abraham, and, and from there, Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's children, and Joseph goes off where? Into Egypt. And there in Egypt, God's people are preserved, but they are trapped in that, and God calls them out. God, doing miraculous work that only God can do, as chronicled in the book of Exodus, calls his people out of slavery. And Christ here is identifying with all of that, with that entire episode, with the entire history of the people of Israel. God's son is the fulfillment of that. And Matthew wants to make sure we catch all of these points. So not only is he going to call about, he's going to talk specifically about the Exodus in verse 15, but then he's going to point to how Jesus is the better Moses throughout this passage. There's tons of language here that's connecting Jesus to Moses. And Matthew's doing that because, again, Moses stands as the head, as the mediator, as the representative of the entire people of Israel. And Jesus does that to the nth degree. Even better than Moses was ever able to do, Jesus is the fulfillment of the people of Israel, of the story of Israel, and in particularly of God's willingness and ability to save a people for himself. So we see the Moses language, whether it's in the, in the story about a, a, a wicked king choosing to kill ba baby boys in an effort to preserve himself, like we see in Exodus chapter 2. Or there's even these, this really particular language down in verse 20 when God speaking to Joseph says, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. The, the language here uh, mirrors Exodus chapter 4, verse 19, almost line for line. So Matthew, as a really good Bible reader, is hoping that his readers are really good Bible readers and that they're picking up on that language, that that's exactly how God told Moses to go back to Egypt to save his people, by telling him that all those who sought to kill him are dead. 
And Matthew's doing that in particular, not just because, oh, that's a cool connection, because he, he needs us to understand that Jesus is the great fulfillment of all of the Exodus story. The defining narrative of the people of Israel is fulfilled in Christ. And it's not that, that God just ran out of material. It's not that he's trying to, to make a quick buck like Hollywood. The details of Jesus' life are a recapitulation of the themes of the Old Testament. And, and they're not just mere reenactments. So Jesus is summarizing all this and taking it above and beyond. Their fulfillments. So that's pretty crazy to think about. That in, in the Exodus, millions of people are saved from physical bondage and brought into salvation. And in our story, one little infant, one tiny little baby is rescued and brought to salvation. And yet what Matthew is telling us is the infant is the better story. The infant is the greater miracle. The infant is the fulfillment of thousands and thousands and thousands of rescue stories that have come before. Jesus is the greater one. Because one day, Jesus will save his people from their sins. Moses and the people of Israel were saved from captivity. But Jesus will save those who trust in him from the greatest of captivity. He will save them from their sins. We can't think about the exodus without also thinking about the exile. So this is another pattern that we see throughout the Old Testament, a pattern that God is playing out and then identifying Christ with in our little, our short passage today. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the exodus, the better exodus as the people of Israel, but he's also the better return from exile the better return from exile. That's why I think he quotes from Jeremiah 31. So we have this horrific story of Herod's evil act. And then we get in verse 18, a quote from the book of Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So what's happening in Jeremiah is that the people are about to be carted off. They're literally being gathered from all, of the country, all over the country in the little city of Ramah, which is north of Jerusalem, which was north of Bethlehem. So in the general area. But what Jeremiah is saying, this isn't just a geography lesson. No, no, no. What's happening here are the themes of God's people crying out to the Lord. And God hears their pleas. That's what we just sang. We have a God who hears their pleas. And so just like the, the mothers who cried out as their children are about to be sent off into exile, all of their worldly hopes dashed, taken away, it seems as if it's all over, as if it's all ended there in the exile. And yet, God has promised that he will restore. That, what a beautiful job Carol did for us reading from Jeremiah chapter 31 and you can see it there in your worship guide if you turn back to it look at how much we we read from from Jeremiah 31 1 through 17 and how many of these verses are about lament how many of these verses are filled with tragedy one just verse 15 
Everything that precedes it and everything that follows it is the great hope that God will restore. He will restore. He will bring a feast. He will bring salvation. And as, as Mason prayed for us, we can cry out to the God who hears because he is a God who saves his people. And what Matthew wants you to understand is as incredible as the promises of Jeremiah 31 were to the mothers who were watching their sons be carted off, even greater than that is Jesus. A greater hope even that our boys will come home, a greater hope even than to the mothers in Bethlehem who have lost their sons, greater than all of that is the hope of Jesus as revealed in this passage. He is our great hope because when he comes back, when he returns from exile, when he returns to us, he will come as a conquering king, one who will restore all the goodness God has intended and he will save his people. He will draw them to himself. When we think of the exile, we should, of course, think of the Garden of Eden. That's why I think Matthew is taking this ark all the way back. Because the Garden of Eden and, our, and our, our parents' exile, Adam and Eve's exile from there, mirrors what, is, what goes on over and over and over again in the life of the people of Israel. And even there, Jesus is the answer. He's the promised one in the garden that even as they're sent out, one will come, a son will come who will crush that liar, who will crush that serpent and restore his people. Jesus is the answer to that exile as well. And he's, Jesus is better not only than the, the great themes of the exile and the exodus, but what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus is everywhere in between across the Old Testament. He's everywhere in between. That's what I think he's doing in that last pro prophetic fulfillment. So Joseph has uh, heard from God. He has come back. And now he, he's back in, among the people of Israel, but he's not exactly sure where to settle. And, God, and Mo, Matthew tells us that God directs him to Galilee, to the, to the city of Nazareth, because that was what the prophets had spoken. Verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, Matthew could have given us this detail a lot of other ways. Like He could have just merely said, well, and then Joseph and Mary, well, they, they got permission to come back to Israel and and they went back to their own hometown. Because that's what Luke tells us. Luke tells us that, that Joseph and Mary were from the, from the town of Nazareth. That would have been a simple solution to explain why they went back to Nazareth. But Matthew doesn't care that it was their hometown. What Matthew cares about is that the reason they went back there is because God told them to as a fulfillment of his eternal plan from the very beginning. And so he tells us that this was to fulfill what the prophets had said. Spoken by the prophets. Now, this, one, this fulfillment passage is different here than the other ten that Matthew does in his, um, in his gospel. So, this is the fifth one we've seen so far in just these two short 
short passages where we've had the pattern of this was to fulfill what the prophets spoke. And this one's a little different because it doesn't give us a direct quotation. Actually, you're never going to find anywhere in the Old Testament the line that the Messiah was to be a Nazarene. It's, it's It's a weird phrasing. And there's a couple different ways people have tried to explain this. Now, some have said, well, what we're talking about here is a Nazarite, uh, that, that Jesus was to be a Nazarite. And, and there's a little bit of a play on words there, and, and Matthew might be doing that. But again, there's nowhere in the Old Testament that we're told that Jesus would be that. And I'm all for seeing big themes, right, yeah, throughout here. And so that might be a theme. I don't know that it's the the perfect explanation of what what Matthew has in store for us here. The other option is to think that maybe the play on words here is that it's related to the word that we would translate branch. So in Isaiah 11.1, we're told that a a root of Jesse will come, that a a branch will come. And that's a a messianic prophecy. And so maybe what, what Matthew intends for us to catch here is that the prophet's of old have told us that, that this little shoot will come up and it will be what is fulfilled in Christ coming from Nazareth. But I, I think more here, when, because, because Matthew is using the term prophets, he's not attempting to, to pull this from one specific passage. He's wanting to see it spread out all throughout, that the character of who this Messiah would be would be one we should expect to be a Nazarene. Now, in, in first century Judea, Naz, uh, Nazareth was, wasn't worth mentioning. It wasn't worth bringing up. Even uh, when uh, Philip uh, introduces uh, Jesus to his brother in, uh, in, in John 1, 46, and Nathaniel, his brother, says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, I mean, that's such a backwater little town. I mean, is that worth mentioning? And I think what Matthew's trying to say is, yeah, yeah, that's the point. That's always been God's pattern. It's always been God's pattern to to choose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has always chosen to choose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And what the prophets have told us is that this Messiah He would be despised and rejected by men. He would be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We wouldn't even want to look at him, Isaiah 52 says. We we wouldn't even desire to set our eyes on him. And that's the one, the humble one. The prophets have told us, of course, he would come from a place like Nazareth. And what I think Matthew is doing here is he's not picking and choosing his places. He's not trying desperately to, to, to hunt throughout the Old Testament, trying to find some like meager clues as to, to who, who was here and, and who is this Messiah. Maybe I can find this little verse over here. Maybe I can find this little piece over here. Maybe it's connected to this. Maybe if I twist it just enough, I can, I can, I can point that convince you that this is really about Jesus. No, what Matthew has done is he has so immersed himself in God's word and the scriptures he has at hand that he he is finding Jesus everywhere. He is finding Jesus all over it. 
It would be as if he was not trying to build a house uh, like at the beach, up on stilts, that, that has just a couple places that touch down to the sand. And the hope is that that will withstand, that will stand up. But if it's just touching in one or two few little places. No, what I think Matthew is trying to help us understand is the, the, the truth that Jesus is the Old Testament promised Messiah it, it is a slab It's a slab that's laid down directly onto the bedrock, and it touches at every place. And he can prove to you that it touches at every place because he's like, oh, well, you want to know about where he came from? It's, how, how, about, how about Hosea? You want to know about what a comfort he is to the exiles? Let's talk about Jeremiah. You want to talk about what, what, where he might have come from, what his hometown might have been? I see that everywhere. I see that everywhere. This is the Messiah that we are are to find our hope in. To find our hope in this grand prophesied Messiah. He's revealed here in this passage as the one we can set our hope in. Now, we're up at 40,000 feet, and I wish we could take time to look at every other peak, every other part of the forest. I maybe just point quickly out the other side of the plain and tell you that Matthew doesn't know this yet, but a couple decades later, God is going to reveal to the, the Apostle John the revelation uh, of John. And in Revelation 12, we get a really similar story. And there, God is telling us in, in Revelation chapter 12, hey, you should be looking for this all over the place. That, that a woman would birth a child and there would be a, a serpent there, a dragon, to destroy that child. And that serpent is the enemy. That serpent is Satan. And God will crush that serpent. And that's why the nations have always raged. Psalm 2. The nations have always raged and set themselves against God and against his anointed because they've hated this promised Messiah. And it reveals where their hope really lies. And so let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, love this Messiah. Find your hope in this Messiah. He is our hope revealed. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 tell us, since then we have a great high priest, talking about Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Examine where does your hope lie? Does it lie in the one who can identify with us even to the point of having left heaven and come in obscurity to little towns like Bethlehem and Nazareth? The one who can sympathize with our very weaknesses because he was despised and rejected by men. And let me encourage you that as you want to fall more in love with this hope, with this Messiah, with this Jesus, then let me encourage you to fall more in love with this word. In particular, with the Old Testament. As Christians, we are whole Bible people. We're not just New Testament people. We're whole Bible people. And the writers of the New Testament expected us to be whole Bible people. 
and to pick up on all of these connections. And so as you, as you enter into the new year, let me encourage you to robustly read your Bible. Maybe to, to set that as your, your New Year's resolution or, or maybe even uh, permission from me right now, even just to text somebody in this room and to say, hey, let's, let's read the Bible together this year. I, I'm giving you permission to pull out your phone and text a friend. I promise I won't say anything important for like another 20 seconds. And just to say to them, let's read the Bible together this year. Let's fall in love with this Messiah by falling in love with his word and with this testament in particular. We've got some resources on the bookstall. We've even got an audio Bible. If that would help you to absorb God's word this year, you can do that from the app on your phone. You can do that by listening to podcasts like Bible Talk, where, where learned pastors just walk through the Bible together to help you see all of these overarching themes so that when you find them, wherever you are, reading in the Old Testament or in the New, you fall more deeply in love with this promised and fulfilled Messiah that has come to save his people from their sins. Well, before we walk away, as we're taxiing the plane, as I said, let's look at a couple things, a couple of the trees in this forest as I mix all of my metaphors. And so our hope has been revealed in Christ. And now that our hope has been revealed, well, it's going to reveal what's in our hearts. Our hearts are revealed by our hope. And what do I mean by that? Well, I want us to look at two particular characters we find in our story. It's really interesting to me that with all the different people involved, there's only a few that get to be named. Did you notice that? Like, the child doesn't get a name in our stories today. Mary doesn't get, isn't named. The angel isn't named. The magi aren't named. The assassins aren't named. No one else is named. There's just a couple names. There's one down uh, in verse 22 that kind of anchors us into the history of it. Rachel gets a shout out in verse 18. But really, the two main characters of our story are Joseph and Herod. And they have two radically different responses to the hope that's been revealed in our passage today. Radically different responses. And I think it's because their hearts are radically different from one another. Let's look at Herod. Herod, his response is fury. Herod follows the pattern of God's enemies who are furious at the hope that's been revealed in Christ. What we learn in this passage is that Herod's hope was in this world. So Herod is a, a, this petty king uh, who is over a petty little kingdom. He's, he's taken over this little neck of the woods and he's done everything he can to maintain control over it. So history tells us that this episode that we see in 16 through 18, that's not the first time he's used the sword to protect his own throne. He's killed at least one uncle, at least one of his many wives, at least three of his sons. And often in the same kind of vicious, cruel, public, demeaning ways that we see in our passage today. He, he was a terrorist. And, and, and his heart... Um, is, is bent towards himself. 
The atrocity of, of killing the, the boys in Bethlehem is, is in keeping with his character. He is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And in this story, he stands in as a representative of all the enemies of God. Most importantly, the extreme enemy of God in our accuser, Satan. But in particular, all of us who are outside of the grace and goodness and mercy of God. When the enemies of God encounter the the providential plan of God, their hearts are filled with fury. And that fury pours out on to others. And so Herod's jealousy leads to death. Jealousy, anger, always lead to death. The, The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God James would tell us. And that that kind of envy and rivalry, the desire to have more, to not trust and walk in contentment, well, that's been the problem from the beginning. Even Adam and Eve, uh, they they look with their eyes, they think with their own minds and not with with a pattern of faith. And in that petty jealousy, they desire to be like God. And in the end, death comes. Death comes. That's, I think, one of the the key things Matthew needs us to understand about Herod. Is that Herod dies. Yes, Herod brings death to others as a consequence of his anger and his jealousy. But in the end, Herod dies. Remember, Matthew loves to tell us the the end all the way back at the beginning. And so in in verse 14... It says that Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So before we even see the the atrocious actions of Herod, we're already told how it's going to end for him. He dies. No matter what he's about to do, no matter what he's going to try to do, no matter how much in his pettiness he tries to cling to his kingdom and preserve a throne for himself, in the end, he dies. Look in verse 19. And when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. The great irony of of Herod's attempt is is that in seeking to preserve his own life, he kills others. And and yet the baby lives. The baby lives. The baby lives that is the Christ child who will one day live to die. And to die so that others may live. To die that he would live again. And in rising again, in coming back from the dead, he conquers sin and death and offers life to all who would trust in him to all who would trust in him. The grand contrast between the wicked one in Herod and the the righteous, sovereign king in baby form is that one only has death in front of him and the other one has life and death and life again and he offers it to us. When Paul would write to the Ephesians, he would write about what their lives were like before Christ. And he would say, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
and when she once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What Paul is helping us understand is that Herod's not the extreme outlier. Herod is us. Outside of Christ, Herod is us. Our attempts to, to wrest control over our own petty kingdoms, maybe in, in, in our lives or uh, at work with our families, we're always seeking to control and not to trust in the Lord. And what we're actually doing when we do that is we're following the prince of the power of the air. That's, that's Paul's poetic description of Satan, the liar, the murderer from the beginning. And that's the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what marks Herod, is he's a son of disobedience. That's what marks us in our sin and among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of, la- of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here again in Ephesians 2, Paul is helping to recognize that we are Herod. And yes, he was a man of wrath in that he was wrathful towards others, but he was also a man of wrath, because God's wrath fell on him. And that is what stands before all of us who have not trusted in Christ. Is that to walk in this life only for ourselves or in our own strength only leads to death and wrath. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Because of Christ's accomplished work on the cross and his resurrection, his very life, he now offers you life. By grace you too can be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, our hope today is that you would trust in this hope, that you would trust in this rich mercy and grace that we see in the sovereign hand of God to save those who will trust in him. And that is the pattern of faith that we see in Joseph. Joseph, in contrast to Herod, doesn't walk in fury. He walks in faith. He walks in faith. We are called to follow the pattern of Joseph and to walk in faith. Now, there is tons of really cool stuff you could unpack here with Joseph. How he, as as the son of Jacob, but from Nazareth, mirrors the one who was uh, Joseph, son of Jacob, who went down into Israel, who who saw dreams and who who paved the way for God's Messiah, for God's salvation to come. But even more than that, I want us to look at the specific ways in this passage that Joseph responds to the good news, who responds to the hope revealed. And we see it is in sharp contrast to Herod. Whereas in verse 16, when Herod finds out bad news, he's furious and he goes into a rage. And the the language there is literally that he he flew into a rage. His immediate knee-jerk response is to, to seek to protect himself at the cost of everyone else. Joseph's immediate knee-jerk response is in faith to protect others, to think not of his 
his own sake, his own reputation, but instead to follow the path that God has laid out before him. His faithfulness was immediate. When he got word from the Lord in a dream to arise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, what does it say that he did? He arose. He took the child and his mother and fled to Egypt. He didn't dilly-dally. He didn't hem and haw. He didn't bargain with God. He didn't worry about what the other folks in Bethlehem would think. He didn't worry about how much it was going to cost him to to make this trip. He didn't worry about the the losses he would have because that project he had started was going to go unfinished. No, he immediately follows. He was immediately faithful. Chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that he departed by night. And I don't think this is meant just to emphasize kind of like a, a, a secret um, way in which he was getting out of town. Because they've got 90 plus miles to travel. They're not going to do that in one night. They're going to do that day and night. They've got a long trip out in front of them. No, I think what we're intended to recognize there is that he left by night. It's that he had that dream, he was told what to do, and he immediately responded in faith. He woke up, gathered the mother and her child, and they immediately headed out of town. And and they weren't just told just to to go to Egypt and remain there uh, for a little bit. They're told to remain there until I tell you. It says in verse 13, And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And and verse 15 says, again, that he did exactly that. He went there and remained until Herod died. And that's where the story picks up in verse 19. So that when the story circles back to Joseph, we find him exactly where he was supposed to be. Exactly where he was supposed to be. He's in Egypt, it says. Verse 19, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Joseph hadn't slipped back to Israel early. He hadn't even or moved on to Ethiopia just to add an extra, an extra barrier. You know, God said to go to Egypt. That was good. I'll go a little bit further, trusting in my own strength, trusting in a way for me to preserve myself. No, he goes and does exactly what God has called him to do. This is what it looks like for us to be people of faith is that we respond to God's message and God's messengers with trust. And we trust as we see God's providential hand move into our lives, whether it's in the grand things or in the small things, whether it's in joyful things or hard things, whether it's the loss of a loved one or the loss of a job or the loss of an expectation or it's, or it's the, the, an opportunity that's come that we're not sure what to do with, in all of those places, We're not seeking to walk in our own strength, but to walk in the hope of Christ. Not seeking to build our own kingdom, but instead to walk in the pattern of his kingdom. To tell others of his kingdom. And yes, it does mean things like we're slow to speak. We're slow to become angry and we're quick to obey. It does mean that we're not surprised when we're persecuted. We're not surprised when the nation's rage. It also means that in all that we do, we pursue humility and not grandeur, not building ourselves up, not putting ourselves at front and center, but instead humbly walking with our humble Savior. 
Now, we typically enjoy gritty origin story reboots for what they reveal to us about the characters we had already loved and heard of before. But what has today's story revealed about you? What has today's story revealed about your heart? What's it revealed about your hope? Is it placed in the things of this world that will all end in death? Or is it placed in the life of Christ? The life of the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world? Where does your hope lie? Let me pray for us. Father God, we are humbled to see your mighty hand at work, to see it in the grand details across all of history, from Eden through the exile, through the exodus, and into a stable and a manger and a child who would be king, who is king. We marvel at that. And Lord, we pray that our hope would not be found in the fleeting things of this world, but would be found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Lord, as that hope impresses itself into our hearts or change our hearts, we can't in our own strength change ourselves. We need new hearts, hearts that respond in faith. We know that by grace, through faith, that we are saved, that this is not our own doing. It is a gift that comes from you, a gift of grace. May we not boast in ourselves, but only in Christ, who is our hope. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen.